Well, good morning, family, and those of you at home as well, good morning. What a great morning it's been already. So as we come to begin our time in the Word this morning, let's take a moment and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for the blessing of gathering, whether it is in person here or over the, over the internet, it is a blessing to, to share time together in worship, to share time together uh, in fellowship, to share time together in your word. So we ask your blessing here on this time. We ask your blessing on the Browns. Thank you for, being a, for us being able to catch up with them just a little bit, for Coulter and Anna, for their very effective ministry in, in training leaders throughout Latin America. All the unexpected things of this last year have brought new challenges for them, as it has for our own ministry here. But I thank you that it has allowed us all to learn new skills and innovate new ways of of doing what needs to be done, and that in a way it has actually increased the number of leaders they are able to equip. So we pray that you would continue to to um, bless that their efforts and their their work and training. We pray that you would open the doors as they've requested that they can be from August to November in person in Brazil uh, doing the training that needs to be accomplished there. So now, Father, as we open up your word, I pray that you would help us to to have our spiritual eyes and ears open, that we might see what you have for us and hear what you have for us here in your word. And may as well, we not only have our our ears open to listen, but our hearts ready to receive, that we might take it and put it into practice in our life. So thank you for your word, and now for this opportunity to study it together. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I encourage you to take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Samuel and chapter 8. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we are going through looking at the life of Samuel uh, here in, in the book of First Samuel. We were at chapter 8. We, last week we were in chapter 7. When we ended there in chapter 7, we saw that Samuel, now a uh, man of probably around 35 to 40 at that time, leads a revival in the land of Israel, turning the hearts of the Israelites back to the Lord. And then the Lord accomplishes a mighty victory over the Philistines who attacked the Israelites. And then Samuel begins serving as a judge in Israel. He's the last of the judges. The book before this is a book of judges, about a 400-year period where the nation is ruled by these, these men who are called judges. And Samuel is the last of them. But he takes on the role we saw in chapter 7, as a judge. He becomes, he's been leading as a, he was serving in the, in the temple for many years as an apprentice and a, and a helper to Eli. Then he became known as a prophet of God. And now he takes on this role, a political role, a civic role of leading as judge. All during his leadership, it told us last week in chapter 7, that all during his time as judge, as leader, there was, there was peace, there was prosperity in Israel. As we come here to chapter 8, some significant time has passed from then till now. 
It's now about 20 to 25 years later. And as we read here in verse 1, follow along, it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Samuel, it says, is old now. That means he's probably over 60. Those of us who are over 60, we kind of snicker at that because we don't think 60 is that old anymore. You've got to be at least 90 to be old. But uh, in the eyes of many younger folks, 60 is quite old. And uh, as the way they view it, many of them, they think he's figure he's on the way out. And uh, as also most of us who are over 60 have discovered, we have slowed down just a little bit from when we were 40 or so. And uh, that's probably part of what's going on here as Samuel enlists the help of his sons to help him take on some of the demands of judging. We noticed last week, uh, looking at the map, Samuel's hometown was in the middle just north of Jerusalem, and it says at the end of the chapter that he does a circuit every year in his judging, kind of represented by that little football-shaped area there in the middle. He kind of does a circuit between uh, four cities. Uh, but apparently there was some need for some additional help in this realm of judging down to the south down on the southern frontier of Israel, down in Beersheba. And so Samuel sends his two sons down there to take on that role. Verse 3, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Unfortunately, Samuel's sons didn't follow in their father's footsteps of being godly men. They are not living godly nor even honestly. They have somewhere along the line gotten sidetracked by money and uh, sold out their integrity for profit. It's not an unusual story, unfortunately, in our world Matter of fact, by the way, from I would say from ancient times up until our very own times, that uh, whether you look at government, whether you look at business, or whether you look in churches, there are three big traps that often ensnare and destroy leaders. Those are pride and money and sexual immorality. One of those three you'll hear almost every single day. If you turn on the news or look online on the news, you'll see that it takes down some leader in our land or some leader in a church. And unfortunately, the money got Samuel's sons. As I was preparing for this week and I'm reading various commentaries, I noticed that a good many commentators point at this point, they point fingers at Samuel and they say, ah, Samuel has followed in the footsteps of his adoptive dad, Eli. We'll see back in, if you look back in chapters 2 and 3, we were there a number of weeks ago. Eli, who was priest in Israel, and his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were corrupt, worthless men, the Scripture said. And um, that perhaps Samuel here is like Eli. He has become a neglectful or a lethargic leader. 
And he has been a failure as a father. But before we, I think, jump to conclusions and criticize Samuel, it's worth noting that as you study the text, unlike Samuel, there is no mention here in the text that Samuel was neglectful in his duties. There is no rebuke from God about Samuel uh, failing to control his sons or dealing with the issues at hand. And there is also no statement in the Scripture that Samuel didn't correct the problem with his sons and remove them from office once he became aware of it. So Samuel may have been a neglectful father. He may have been uh, neglectful in this issue, but the Bible doesn't tell us that. And so I think that rather than being hasty and jumping to conclusions, we'll simply let it be what it is. Because if you have lived very long, you have probably gotten to know some very good and godly and faithful parents who have raised children who, when those children grew up and became adults, went off the rails and uh, in their faith and walked away from serving God. That can happen to very good and godly parents because we cannot control what our children do when they become adults. So we don't know, but the fact is, unfortunately, his sons were not godly guys. Verse 4, that brings up what happens next. Then all of the elders, it says, the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So the elders of Israel, they, the leaders of the tribes, they gather together and come to see Samuel at Ramah, which is his hometown. And there they meet with him to bring some complaints and essentially to hand Samuel a pink slip. You're fired. They give Samuel three different reasons for their complaints. The first is they say, you're old. And again, for any of us over 60, that hurts. You know, you're old. He is old, but he's not dead. And he's not, he's also not incapacitated, as we'll see. He is active and he stays serving the Lord, doing ministry for the next decade or so. He's not feeble. Bottom line though, they say, you're old. Maybe they just think he's old fashioned. Maybe they think he's out of style. He's out of step. They say, you're old. You need to retire. Their second complaint is they say, your sons don't walk in your ways. Your sons aren't like you. Your sons are corrupt. That is a true statement we've already read, and it's a legitimate complaint. Because reality, not a one of us wants corrupt leaders, unless you're the one doing the corrupting. Those are the only people that like corrupt leaders. Whether it's bad child rearing, bad supervision, or it's their own choices as adults, bottom line, these sons are not doing good, and these leaders say, we don't want them having any part leading us. 
Their third complaint is they say, we really don't want to find your successor, Samuel. What we want is something entirely different. We want a king. We don't want another judge. We've had enough of judges. We want a king. Verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel's response to the complaints of these elders is that first it says he is displeased. This thing displeased him. But the text doesn't tell us why Samuel is displeased. We have to kind of sort through to see if we can figure it out. We might guess that the reason he's displeased is because he feels rejected. It's hard not to feel rejected when you're a leader of a nation, the economy is booming, and the nation is at peace. None of your adversaries, none of your enemies have attacked or have oppressed your nation in over 20 years. In all the time that Samuel has been leading, all of the economic indicators, you know, all of the international relation indicators are way up. But these leaders come and they say, hey, Samuel, your poll numbers are way down. You are polling really low here. And bottom line, we don't want you anymore. Nobody wants you anymore as leader. What they want is a king. I think any one of us would feel pretty rejected at that point, wouldn't you? And have you ever been rejected? It doesn't feel good. Whether it's being rejected from a job, whether it's being rejected from a team, whether it's being rejected from some honor, whether it's being rejected as a spouse, whether it's being rejected as a child or a parent or whatever, as a neighbor, it doesn't feel good to be rejected. And I imagine when a whole nation rejects you, that's really got to hurt. So I have no doubt that it cuts Samuel deeply, and I'm sure that that's part of why he's displeased. But I think there's more to it than that. You see, that little phrase there where it says, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, that that little phrase can be translated very literally a little bit different. Most all the modern translations say exactly what we read here, the thing displeased. But if you go back and translate it literally, it reads this way. The thing was evil or sinful in the sight of Samuel when they said. That's a whole different concept. It's not just that it displeases Samuel. It's that Samuel looks at what they're doing and saying and he says, there's something very wrong here. This is sinful. This is evil which makes us say, well, what here is evil? What here is wrong? If his problem is because of their sin, why? Well, we might notice that as they come to Samuel here, they don't come and say, hey, Samuel, 
the world is changing a little bit. Our situation is changing a little bit. And we're wondering if maybe there needs to be a change in the style and the substance of our governmental organization, of our governmental structure. Hey, Samuel, since you are not only the leader here, but you are also a spokesman for God, you're the prophet of God, the most We'll find there are others as well in a little bit. We get a little farther along. But Samuel is kind of the head of the prophets. They say, Samuel, why don't you go talk to God and see what God has to say? Because we think it'd be a good idea to have a king. Do you notice they didn't do any of that? What did they come? They say, they come and they said, give us a king. They demand a king. And this week, as I was reading this and studying this, I read this and I go, wow. (laughs) And I point the finger at these Israelites and go, yeah, guys, that was a stupid move. That's really bad. Just going and saying, hey, we want a king. Give us a king. And as I was saying that, I remembered the words of Jim Cain, our first full-time pastor at the chapel. He always used to say this, whenever you point the finger at somebody... There's three fingers pointing back at you. And I got to thinking and I realized I have a propensity to do this with God. I have a propensity to come to God and say, God, here's what you need to do. God, here's what I want. God, give me this. God, fix that. Do this. Any of you all pray like that? We are quick to come to God with our demands rather than ask, God, what is your will? We are quick to come to God and express, God, here's what I want. Here's my desire. And very slow to say, God, what is it that you want? Big difference. Let us watch and learn. These things, Paul says, are written to us for our example And many times the example is negative. Learn what not to do by looking at these folks. A second thing I note here at Samuel's response, not only is he displeased with what he hears from the Israelites, but I notice his response, what's the very first thing he does after they talk to him? It's not what many of us would do, which would be to get angry. What a bunch of ungrateful people! I can't believe I've sacrificed, I've labored for you all these years, and here you go and you want to fire me from my job. Where's the thanks for the peace that we've enjoyed all these years, the prosperity that we've enjoyed all these years? Where's the thanks for my leadership? Where's the thanks for, we'll see, we'll talk about it in a few weeks ahead. Worship is greater than it's, it's celebrated in the Old Testament, one of the high points. When you get to Josiah, well, I'll just go ahead. When you get to Josiah years later and he leads a revival, it says they celebrated the greatest Passover, a Passover that, like of which has never been celebrated since the days of Samuel. It was a high point. Samuel led these folks in some wonderful times of great worship. Where's their gratitude? You see, we'd lash out, many of us, wouldn't we? At least, even if we don't, on the exterior, we'd be doing it on the inside. Don't get any of that from Samuel. The other thing I see he doesn't do it, he doesn't defend himself. Many of us get defensive, don't we, when someone comes and they hurt us, they offend us. What does Samuel do? His very first response, he prays. 
He takes it to the Lord. That is significant. It's not usually for many of us our first thing, but it is a significant thing, a character to no, characteristic to notice of Samuel. He is a man of prayer. We always find him praying. Well, he takes this to the Lord, verse 7. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only that you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. God answers Samuel's prayer. And the first thing I notice in this is that God confirms what we suspected. That Samuel does indeed feel the sting of rejection. I know that here because God says, Samuel, they have not rejected you. The only reason for God to point that out is because Samuel feels that way. And by the way, that, that's comforting to Samuel. Because what God is saying here is, Samuel, I know how you feel. And that's important for you and me to know. Because there are times when, when things go badly, things go wrong, uh, we get hurt, we get offended, and we wonder, does God know what's going on in my life? Does anybody know how I feel? And God says, yes, I do. Hey, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. Calm down a little bit. God's offering words of comfort here. But another thing that God does is He gives Samuel some perspective. He says, Samuel, what I want you to know is that feeling rejected here is a short-sighted viewpoint. There's more you need to see. God says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. And it's not even that, Samuel, they are rejecting you and they are rejecting me. It's, Samuel, they are rejecting you because they are rejecting me. In other words, Samuel, they're rejecting me. You are collateral damage. So it often is, I would say, we could even say it is always that case. When people hurt us in their sin... They hurt God first, and they hurt God most. And we are collateral damage. Every sin against us, God takes personally against Him. It happens to Him first. That's David's prayer in Psalm 51, where he's coming and confessing his sin to God. And he says, against you and against you only I have sinned. And we think, wait a minute, he had Uriah murdered, he sinned with Bathsheba, he sinned against his wife, he sinned against... We can go down a whole long list. And David says, I've sinned against you only. In other words, our offense is so obnoxious, so offensive to God... It overshadows every other offense to every other person. Give some perspective here. Samuel, they're, they're rejecting me. And Samuel, they're rejecting me as their king because I am their king. You see, when they're asking for a king, it's offensive to God because they already have a king and it's God. 
You say, yeah, yeah, that's because God is king of everything. No, it's much more specific than that. It's not just semantics. God was actually their king. See, if you go back to the time of Moses, the nation is born as they come out of Egypt. And their first stop out of Egypt is they come to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God meets with them. God speaks to Moses and gives them the Mosaic Law. What Old Testament scholars tell us is that when we look at the Old Testament law, we see it through our eyes, but we don't see it through the eyes of the people in that day. It was very common in that day when a king would uh, ascend to his throne, when he would take the kingdom in a nation, that the king would make a contract, a covenant with the people of the land, with his subjects. And that was always done in a very prescribed form, in a pattern. The Mosaic Law takes that pattern. When God made the covenant law with Israel, the point that God was making is, I am your king and you are my people. And you say, well, that's just a bunch of scholars reading that into that. No, the Bible says it very plainly in several places. Here's one passage where we find that in the Bible over in Deuteronomy 33. It says this, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. It's taking us back to Mount Sinai there in the wilderness when the law was given. They followed in your steps. They, the people, followed in God's steps, receiving directions from you, speaking to to God. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. That's another name for Israel. The Lord became king, we'd say in other words, in Israel, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. That day at Mount Sinai, as all the people are there, all the leaders are there, God gives the law to them. God officially became king by contract with the people of Israel. So when they come asking for a king, they are rejecting the king they have. That's a whole lot bigger than rejecting the judge they have. Samuel, that's God's point. They're rejecting me, God says, and they're rejecting me as their king. But God goes on and he says, Samuel, this isn't really anything new. For there's been a history of this all along. There's been a a history of rejection. From the very time that I brought them out of Egypt, even before Moses got down the mountainside with the law, the people had decided Moses isn't coming back. You know what? We need to make a God. Even though they had already heard God said, you should have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. They've already heard that, and yet here they go just a very short time later, and they decide we're going to, we're abandoning God and making our own. And it goes on and on and on through their history. So Samuel, God is telling Samuel, in essence, don't be too discouraged. They've done the same thing to me. They've been doing it all along. It shouldn't surprise you. And then he says, now Samuel, Give them what they want. They want a king. Give them a king. But before you do, 
make sure that you very soberly, very solemnly explain to them, here's what it's going to be like to have a king. Verse 10. So, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to all the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty and some to plow his ground and some to reap his harvest and some to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take some of your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And we will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. So, God gives a warning. He says, up till now, by the way, over the last 400, 500 years, Israel has had very limited, very minimal government. God is their king. The law of Moses serves as the law of the land to govern the land. And the priests and the Levites are charged with the job of teaching everyone God's word. And the elders of the cities, the elders of the tribes, were to implement and lead the people into compliance with God's word. That was the governmental structure. Very, fairly local, close by, and very simple. But the warning here is that a king will create a government, a central government, and he's going to require armies and weapons and chariots, and he's going to require commanders, he's going to require a palace, he's going to require government buildings, he's going to require bureaucracy and government employees, and on and on, and it's going to be expensive. The operative word in this warning is the word take. He says, a king will take. All of us have noted the longer you get, the more you note that government has an unending thirst for taking. Do they not? How often does it go down? Not often. He says, the king will take. And he says, you're not going to like it. The king is going to take your sons to be charioteers and horsemen and runners and soldiers and groundsmen and weapons makers. The king is going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. The king is going to take the best of your property, your best fields, your best orchards, your best vineyards, and says he's going to give them to his political cronies, his servants. The king is going to take a tenth of your grain to give to, again, his political people. The king is going to take your servants and your men, your animals, your John Deere tractor. He's going to take it all and he's going to take it to do his work. The king is going to take a tenth of your flocks. Eventually, you will feel like 
that you have become a slave to the king because, in fact, you have. And he says, when you get there, you're going to cry out for relief. And God says, I won't answer. I wonder, have you ever had a conversation with your parents like that? I was thinking back to my childhood, and I remember having a number of conversations like this with my parents. Where I wanted something, I wanted to do something, I wanted to go somewhere, whatever. And my parents, as I was getting older, wouldn't always say no. They would say something like this. Well, Keith, we don't think that's a good idea. But we won't say no. We don't think you should do that. But we won't tell you you can't. And then my dad would always say the same thing. It would start off with, but if this happens, and he blah, 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 blah. Or if this happens, blah, 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 blah. Or if this happens, blah, blah, blah. Or this happens. And he would always end it this way. Don't come crying to me. You guys ever had that conversation with your parents? Because what I learned over time was, and my advice to you, young people who are here this morning, if your parents have that conversation with you, listen. Listen very long and hard. Because almost never... When they said that, almost never would things go right or go well if I went against their advice. Now, when God has this conversation with you, you can remove that word almost. Things will never go well. We can expect consequences and problems forthcoming if we go against God's warnings. Just as Psalm 106 verse 15 says, And He, that's God, gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. You see, God will sometimes give us or let us have what we demand, even when it's a really bad idea for us to have it. But He'll let us have it because we've demanded it. And let us suffer the consequences. It can be a very costly lesson. It was to me often. It was to Israel. But by the way, it didn't happen for a while. Matter of fact, it wasn't for about another 120 years. It didn't happen under the the king who's going to show up in the next chapter. The first king is King Saul. didn't happen under him. It doesn't happen under the next king, which is King David, who came after him. It happened during the next king, King Solomon. King Solomon, who lifts the nation of Israel up in terms of leading Israel into its greatest splendor as a kingdom. He puts Israel on the map in terms of the world's view of Israel, where people go, ooh, Israel. Where kings and nobles and people from all over the world came to sit at the feet of Solomon just to hear this guy give lectures on whatever he was lecturing on that day. And Solomon built great and grand and glorious things in Israel, but all of these things cost big money. And guess who paid for it? All the taxpayers. And when Solomon dies...
And his son Rehoboam takes over on the throne. The people come to him and they say, we can hardly breathe. We are under such a burden of taxation. They beg for relief. And you know what happens? No relief comes. And you know what happens next? There's rebellion. And there's a civil war. And there's a nation that is torn apart, ripped apart, divided, and it never heals. The lesson from their example is don't ignore God's warnings. Don't ignore. But there's a little more here to the chapter and we need to see. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard the words of the people, all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. He goes back to the Lord in prayer again. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Go back home. God's going to give you a king. We'll get there next time. But what happens in this little passage is we get to the real heart of the problem. Here as the people beg again for a king, not only beg, they demand and they say, it's going to happen. They clarify something they said earlier back in verse 5. It's at the heart of their request and it's the heart of their problem. It's really why I think the biggest reason why Samuel saw this request and this demand as a great evil. It's found in this phrase. We want to be like all the nations. There's the problem. We want to be like everyone else. The great tragedy of this demand for a king is it's motivated by the desire to be like all the other nations around them. Everybody else has a king but us, said every teenager everywhere. Not about a king, but, you know, everybody else. And the real tragedy, you see, is it's exactly the opposite of what God wanted for Israel. It's exactly what God did not design Israel to be. Deuteronomy chapter 14, God said, For you are a people holy to the Lord. Holy means set apart. To the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. See, God doesn't say, I chose you, I chose you because I wanted you to be just like everybody else. It's exactly the opposite. I chose you out of everybody else to be unique, to be holy, to be set apart, to be my treasured possession. I wanted you to be the jewel the diamond in the world. And the great tragedy is Israel says, we want to be like everybody else. 
God called Israel to be different. He chose them to be His special people. To know Him intimately and follow Him closely. And the people are saying, no, I don't think so. God says, Leviticus 20, you shall be holy to me. For I, the Lord, your, the Lord am holy and I have separated you from the peoples. That you should be mine. I desire you to be different. I say, no, don't think so. Dear Christian, know this. God has called for you and me to be different too. He has called for us to be set apart, different from the world. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, for you, speaking to Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Believer in Christ, God has called you, he has called me to be his People to wear His name, to have an intimate relationship with Him, to follow Him, to be different than the world around us, to live as a holy, a separate people, to live as people of light in a world of darkness. But the sad reality is there are many People who wear the name of Jesus Christ. Some who may be in the room this morning. Some who may be watching at home. Who name the name of Jesus and yet, sadly and foolishly, look at the world around to try to find a pattern of what I want to look like, what I want to act like, what I want to be like, what I want to value. When God has called us to be His special people. He has called us to be His treasure. And yet, so many Christians want to go be like the world around us. That is a great tragedy. And they are missing out on the blessings and the joys that God has in store for those who love Him and follow Him. They're missing out on those to go and pursue worthless and futile dreams. There are also some very strong warnings in Scripture for those who value the approval and the acceptance of the world over the approval of our God. For those who love popularity and possessions and pleasure more than they love God. For example, James 4 says, verse 4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Those are frightening words. 
Those need to sink in. Because I don't think there's a one of us who never feels that temptation to look on the world around us and to try to imitate it. To try to turn and follow it rather than following our God. So what are we to do to avoid ending up there? To avoid ending up even as Israel did to the point where they don't even realize how offensive they are when they say, we want a king. Romans 12 verse 2 gives the answer. It says, do not be conformed to this this world. There, but it goes on. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's the key. Instead of looking around at the world around us and trying to copy them to try to figure out what our values should be, what our priorities should be, what we should do and think and how we should act, we should look to the Word of God, have our minds transformed by learning what it is God says of who we should be and how we should think and what we should do and what we should value, and what we should love. Make God's Word the pattern for our life. The great message from Israel's example is in this text is that we can't have it both ways. We either need to follow God or follow the world. My hope and my prayer is that for every one of us here this morning, that our choice will be to join with Joshua in his last words as he was getting saying goodbye to Israel. He's about to die. And he issued them a challenge. He said, choose you this day whom you will serve. He recognized it's, it's, you can't run down the middle here and do both. You've got to choose. And he was challenging the Israelites not to get where they are here this, this 400 years later. Choose today whom you serve. Are you going to follow God or are you going to follow the gods here of the world around you? And then he said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I trust that's our desire in our prayer this morning. Father, thank you for this this text. It's challenging, it's convicting because, again, I don't think there's a one of us here who from time to time doesn't fall into that temptation to get our eyes on the world, to be tempted to follow after the gods of this world rather than to follow You. Father, may we, may we not follow in the pattern of Israel who ended up in this awful place. They were saying, give us a king because we don't want God. Rather, may we follow the example of Joshua Say, as for me, as for my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, may that be our heart. That you may receive all the praise. And that, Father, we might live as a light to the dark world because they need to hear there's a God who loves them, who sent a Savior for them. In Him there is rescue, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. Father, help us to live as your people. This we ask in Jesus' name.
Amen.